Our Old Testament reading is Isaiah 40, verses 28 through 31, in your Pew Bibles, page 667, and then 68. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. The New Testament reading is taken from Romans 8, verses 23 to 26. In your Pew Bible, page 1043. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who's hope for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. Good morning, everyone. Oh, what a delight it is to be with you again, probably eight, nine years later. The last time I was here must have been at least eight years ago. And uh, by now my memory, my memory had basically failed me in uh, recalling how pleasant your church and the whole campus is. So it's, uh, it's great to be here. Thank you, Pastor Greg, for... Uh, so graciously, utterly, spontaneously uh, agreeing to, uh, to invite me to uh, worship with you today and to serve from the Word of God. I've um, come from the East Coast and uh, would like to think that I brought you a little bit of this rain. We had been reading in the newspapers and uh, hearing on the news that, uh, that uh, California was in a massive drought, and so I said, let me bring them some rain. Uh, <laughs> you know, the, the God syndrome in, in me. Um, and I've enjoyed the time, the last couple of days or so that I've been here, enormously benefiting from the lovely uh, hospitality and friendship of Miss Linda and uh, Pastor Jeff Park and a few others, and I'm very grateful for that. Let us bow our heads and pray. Gracious Lord, we know that it's because you're present here that our gathering and our coming together has been possible, and we thank you for that. May you descend now through your spirit amongst us, in our midst, move amongst us and touch our hearts and minds and make us receptive of your word. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
If I were to inquire from each of us today to share a little bit about all of the possible sorrows and pains and sufferings and travails and losses that we have each experienced up to this point in our lives, what a mountain it would likely make. In some ways, if I were to inquire, if we were to inquire about the sorrows and the pains and the losses in the life of one single individual, they would still probably amount to a mountain. Because careers fail, relationships break, betrayals are brought upon us by those that might be the closest to us. Hurts of all kinds, loss of loved ones, what a mountain that would be. And if a mountain, when we pile up all of our sorrows and all of our pains and all of our losses, how much bigger of a mountain it would be if we were to pile up all of the prayers that we must have uttered and raised up to the heavens above in relation to each of these devastating or those devastating experiences. Because if you're like me, you would pray numerous times, sometimes countless times, for each of these untoward experiences. And when multiplied, it easily becomes a mountain as tall and as enormous and monumental as Mount Everest of prayers lifted up to the skies to the heaven, the Creator, and our God. I would like us this morning to reflect jointly for a while about prayer. And this reflection, I must admit, um, has been prevalent in my mind, in my heart, uh, over the last couple of years in particular. But I have absolutely no doubt for its relevance to each and every one of you, because if you are human, and more, an aspiring and committed Christian, you're bound to interact and interface with prayer as a subject, if not a reality, on a daily basis, constantly. I must also say to you today with much embarrassment that in the close to 10 years of pastoral experience, pastoral ministry, I don't recall ever preaching exclusively about prayer. Totally unacceptable, I think. Because prayer is, dear friends, one of, the most, one of the most essential and consequential dynamics in a Christian's pilgrimage and walk with God. When a doctoral student at Princeton University asked, what is there left in the world for a truly original research dissertation to be done? Albert Einstein, one of the wisest and smartest men ever known, replied, find out about prayer. Someone must find out about prayer. According to a Gallup poll from a couple of years ago, more Americans will pray this week than will exercise, than will drive a car, have physical intercourse, or even go to work. Nine in ten of us 
Uh, this coming week we'll pray regularly. And three out of four um, claim to pray every single day. I think by now you know it, that just by Googling or typing in the word in Google Prayer, you are bound to be overwhelmed by thousands, if not millions, of links popping up in connection with the subject of prayer. Every world religion that we know has some form of prayer. Small and uh, obscure tribes present offerings and then they pray for the most mundane things in life, for health and food, for rain, for having children, or perhaps for victory in battles. The ancient uh, Incas and the Aztec, we know, uh, they went so far, too often, to actually sacrifice human beings, humans, in order to attract the attention of the gods. And modern Muslims today, from the sophisticated cities of Dubai to the uh, most religious uh, uh, cities like, uh, like Mecca, they stop whatever they might be doing five times a day when the summons comes to pray. Even atheists, it seems, find oftentimes ways to pray. To pray. We humans cannot help but pray. And yet behind all of these impressive statistics and uh, these data about prayer, prayer remains an enormous conundrum, a puzzle of sorts and a challenge for most of us. If um, one were to interview people about prayer, typically the results of such a questionnaire would be along the following lines. Is prayer important to you? The vast majority of people would respond in the affirmative, yes. How often do you pray? Every day? Many, if not most, would say. I'm sure these would be also our responses to these questions. Approximately how long do you pray? Five minutes? Well, perhaps seven minutes. Many would respond. Do you find prayer satisfying? Not really. How many of you would respond in the same manner? Do you find prayer satisfying? Not really. Some would respond, yes. Do you sense the presence of God when you pray? Occasionally, most people would say. Not often, though. It seems that the vast majority of us, if not all of us, regard prayer and consider prayer as utterly important, as essential even, yet are very often at a loss about many things, many aspects of prayer. Because if we are honest, we will um, recognize that our common experience seems to suggest that there is a gap between the theory of prayer and the practice of prayer in our life. And we often actually feel guilty because of that gap and inconsistency between the theory and the practice of prayer, uh, especially when we are faced with apparent failure in our prayer life, the ineffectiveness of our prayers, 
And we blame ourselves oftentimes for that. Part of the problem, I think, is in the fact that many of us engage in the practice of prayer primarily because of the utility that we expect to gain as a consequence of practicing prayer, of praying. In other words, we uh, approach it as something that will help us with something, that will um, perhaps make God more favorably predisposed towards us and, and respond to an issue that we might have and solve a problem that we're dealing with or give us something that we badly need or want in our lives. And so we approach it in this very utilitarian kind of way. But if ours is such an approach to prayer, then it is definitely a very limited and limiting approach to prayer. Because an approach like that really amounts to very little uh, more than just being like a ringing the bell of selfishness, coming to God with selfish requests and expecting certain things. And if that is really the dominant approach to our prayer life, then we should really re-examine it and perhaps abandon that approach. Rather, I find that our confusions about prayer are lessened, not necessarily solved and resolved entirely and definitively, but they're lessened really when we come to an understanding of prayer as a vehicle for communing with God. We pray because we want communion with God. We want to experience a certain type of intimacy with God, our Creator, our Lord, the lover of our souls. Just like a lover, a human being in love um, longs to be in the company of the one that he or she loves. And one way of actually, or a different way of saying what I'm trying to say he here is that the purpose of that kind of approach to prayer is different from the purpose of speech. When we speak, we typically intend to deliver some information. Deliver a word that shares some information. But really, prayer is not exactly equivalent to the purpose of speech. Because the purpose of prayer is much more to not so much inform, but to partake. To partake in the presence and the beauty and the grace and the comfort of our God. Uh, and this, on this understanding of prayer, um, we really talk about entering and parta partaking in the spirit of the one in whose presence we stand whenever we pray. And perhaps next time Pastor Greg invites me to speak again, I can dedicate a whole sermon on this type, on this understanding of prayer. Nevertheless, the most significant issues about prayer seem to revolve around, if we're honest, around the whole question of answered and unanswered prayers. Isn't that so? And not least because of the fact that 
our Lord, Jesus Christ, when he spoke about prayer, he really upped the ante. And he elevated the expectations about prayer to some enormous levels. And all we need to do is to read a couple of uh, very short texts in order to conclude that that was indeed so. So if you have your Bibles, please quickly reference and look at Matthew chapter 21, verse 22. And the second one will come from the Gospel of John, chapter 15, verse 7. So in Matthew 21, now both of these texts are actually quotations of the very, the very words of Jesus Christ. So this, this is not interpretation of the, the gospel writers. But Jesus is quoted here to have said, And whatever things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. And then in John chapter 15, we read, if you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you will ask whatever you desire, and it shall be done for you. Now, Jesus is upping the ante here and raising the expectations to some enormous levels about the efficacy and the validity and the efficaciousness of prayer. But when we juxtapose these promises about the efficaciousness of prayer with human experience, we're bound to actually find stories like the story of the Lord himself, who on the eve of his death on the cross and following his final supper with his disciples, headed out towards the olive tree garden called Gethsemane. We know the story, don't we? But it helps to recall and conjure up what must have gone on during those several hours of Jesus praying to his Father, perhaps unlike, more intensely, than at any previous point in time in his prayer life. So much so that we find in the record of the Gospels perhaps one of the most poignant pictures of a human being pleading with a God in heaven with such intensity that the Bible says Jesus' body perspired not mere sweat but perspired blood my father if this bitter cup of pain and suffering and death on a cross could pass by me please let it be so let it be so we don't know how many times Jesus actually asked the Father, begged the Father, pleaded the Father that, that an alternative may be preferable and may, may, be, may be possible. And yet only hours later was he lying on that cross being nailed to it. When we juxtapose the promises about the power and the 
efficaciousness of prayer with human experience, we find the story of the Lord himself and his unanswered prayers. We also find the story of my own father, who only at 49 years of age, when I was just 17 years old, when I needed him the most, was stricken by a pitiful tumor that resulted three years later into a cancer in the most awkward of places, right here in this sinus, that made it impossibly difficult, especially a few decades ago. He died in 1984 with uh, the uh, technology and the knowledge in medicine being inferior compared to today, um, doctors could not diagnose it until three years later when the disease had metastasized in his right eye and right ear. And the only thing remaining was to basically cut half of his face out with the prospects of surviving being minuscule anyway. And all of the thousands of prayers lifted up to the heavens by the most of the pious and holy people and leaders in the church that we could know of, that we could be told about. And all of the uh, fasting over the long interval of three years of his disease progressing and advancing, and all of the multiple anointings with the choicest olive oil from the Mediterranean parts of lovely Europe resulted in his utterly painful death from a disease that literally ate him up to the point of being skin and bones. Ever since then, I have never had trouble actually envisioning seeing what uh, Job must have looked like. Because I saw my father, I believe, in an identical state. When you juxtapose the promises about the power and the effectiveness of prayer with human experience, you find the story of my father, who died at just 49 when I was just 17 years old. But then, friends, we also find the story of Hannah in the Old Testament, who on some levels was really a fortunate and a blessed woman because she had a husband who loved her deeply and cared for her and was compassionate to her, but whose womb, the Bible says, had been closed and she could have no children. And back in those days, as if being a woman wasn't enough, she was being barren and unable to have children. She was really as good as perhaps just a little higher than a dog. On top of that, her pain was exacerbated day in and day out by Penina, the second woman of Elkanah, the husband, who had children, quite a few, I think. And did I lose my mic here? God had given me some tiny years here that cannot hold this mic. <laughs> Sorry about the distraction. Penina poking her constantly 
and irritating her about the fact that Hannah could not have children. It was an extreme kind of pain that Hannah was going through. So much so that whenever she would go to the temple of God, she would be pouring out her heart, pleading to God for a miracle, for a child, preferably for a son, that would vindicate her. To the point of one day, the high priest in Israel thought her to be intoxicated with wine and came to her and chastised her for perennially being drunk. Stop drinking wine. And he tried to send her off out of the temple. And she opened her mouth and basically said that she was begging the God in heaven to hear her prayers and to give her a child. And we know the story that one day, out of the blue, she conceived and bore her son Samuel, who went on to become one of the greatest prophets in the history of Israel. When we juxtapose the promises about the efficaciousness of prayer and, and the power of prayer with human experience, we find Hannah's story, dear friends. But we also find the story of my own wife, who, when she was just 33 years old, and our daughter, only child, was just three years old, was diagnosed again out of the blue with a cancer, lymphoma cancer, a massive tumor of seven by seven inches embedded in her chest that was choking her literally to death. And you know that first you're diagnosed and then they need to stage you, especially in the, the, uh, the case of cancer. The staging is absolutely uh, crucial because if you're in the earlier stages, the prospects of, of uh, successful therapy and possibly um, uh, survival is uh, so much higher. And I remember that uh, my wife, as part of this staging process, having done the so-called PET scans, I'm sure a few of you know about that, when your whole body is scanned, the purpose of which is to identify where the disease might have actually uh, gone and spread within the body beyond its original location. Uh, my wife called me one day at work and said uh, that uh, they had called her from the hospital saying that the, result, the results of that uh, PET scan had arrived and that they should be uh, picked up. And so I told her, don't worry about it, I will leave work earlier today. Um, you have our daughter, small child at home, I will pick them up and, and bring them home. And that's exactly what I did. I left early around 2 o'clock work and headed towards our Glendale Adventist Hospital to uh, pick up the results. And I got there and I received them from a, what are they called, nurse practitioner, who um, was obviously very busy and uh, had enough time to uh, give them uh, placed them into my hands, and was ready to, uh, to leave right away. And at that point, I asked, I said, I'm absolutely, I have no training whatsoever in, in medicine. I have no clue. Uh, so excuse my uh, naive question, but how do I know where the disease might have spread in the body from looking at, at these pictures? And she said as she was opening the other door to the other room, 
wherever you see dark spots, that's where the disease has gone to. And so I'm leaving the office of the oncologist and going towards the car garage of the hospital and flipping through the many pages, including the analysis of the radiologist. But I was looking at, at these pictures. That was my interest as a, as a lay individual. Um, and I saw lots of dark spots beyond her original location. All the way down, the rule of thumb being, um, if you see dark spots beyond, below the diaphragm, suggests uh, significant spread of the disease and therefore higher stage of the disease. And I was thrown into such a state of panic and fear and anxiety that I began, I believe, to pray so intensely like never before in my life, begging God for a miracle, begging God to spare the life of my wife, to spare the life of the mother of my child. And I got to, to my car, started the engine, my eyes, as you can imagine, tearing up, but still I could see. I reversed back, and I was on the, on the first floor of the car garage. So all I had to do was just go a little bit up the hill. I could go only right or left. If I had chosen right, it would have taken me to a different section of the hospital um, garage. Left would have brought me immediately to the main road. So I could see no cars to the left or right or ahead of me. And I get to the top of this slight hill, which, is part, which was part of the, uh, the garage. No car in front of me, no car around me. And I turn left. I'm still in the mode of praying and begging God and basically crying. And suddenly, in front of me, there was this pickup truck with a registration plate that said, Expect a Miracle. I'm not superstitious. I've done too much reading and studying in life. On top of that, I'm a Christian, and superstition and Christianity do not mesh. What is the statistical likelihood of, at the moment of praying to God and begging for a miracle, suddenly, out of nowhere, for a pickup truck to appear with a registration plate that said, expect a miracle. And dear friends, it's been now more than eight and a half years since that diagnosis and since that travail. And my wife is, I can uh, tell you, perhaps healthier than me today. Amen. She has been cured. She has been cured and it has been a miracle of God and from God. And it has been a response to not one prayer, many prayers. When you juxtapose the promises of God about prayer and its power and efficacy, you find the story of my wife, dear friends. You find the story of my wife as well. In the book Between God and Man, Joshua Heschel, one of my favorite philosophers and theologians, says, God's grace or God's intervention 
resounds in our lives like a staccato. Now, those of you that are musically uh, educated, you will know that, and I'm not, a staccato I hear is a, is a, is a method in composition and uh, musical articulation whereby certain notes are inserted in a composition in an almost random manner. There is no pattern to it necessarily. And so, Heschel says God's grace, his intervention resounds in our lives like a staccato, and only by retaining the seemingly disconnected, the seemingly random notes, comes the ability to grasp the theme, to grasp the melody. In other words, staccato means that there is a divine response, apparently every so often in our lives, not always, not even often. The juxtaposition that I just actually reflected on of answered and unanswered prayers only underscores this fact about this mystery of the divine staccato, about the massive dilemmas that surround prayer, the fact that it remains a huge mystery. For all of the unanswered prayers in your life, if you were to ask me, why didn't God answer my prayers? I would simply and unfortunately have to say, I really don't know. Why such inconsistency? Why so much randomness? Even apparent arbitrariness? Why so much staccato? Why so much incongruence in the way God responds to our pleadings and our prayers, our petitions? I really don't know. And yet, what definitely emerges from the biblical record, dear friends, and what I can testify from my experience, and I believe a similar experience would be shared by many of you, is the fact that prayer is still effective. Amen. Prayer does work, dear friends. In all of the dilemmas, in all of the mysteries surrounding prayer, notwithstanding the message today that I would like you to pick up, and carry out of this church with you from this sermon is that God can still be prevailed upon. And that through prayer and in prayer, divine action and divine intervention can be triggered with some amazing results. Results that would defy natural laws. Results that would defy hereditary or genetic predispositions, results that would actually mean that even divine plans have been altered. Even divine plans. I love the story of David. King David, following his liaison with beautiful Bathsheba, he received a message from God through prophet Nathan your child will surely die. And what does David do? Does he resign himself to this prophetic word and does he conclude that, you know what, this is, this is the will of God and it must come to pass. It cannot be changed. Is that what David does? Absolutely not. He goes down on his knees in sackcloth and ashes and he prays and he fasts for days fervently, never returning back to the, to the dining room to eat for days. Why? 
Why does he do that? Because he knew who God was and what he was like, and he knew that even divine plan could be changed. That the future is not predetermined. That the future is not preset. And so he prays and he fasts for days. Now we know that the child did die, nevertheless. But that's besides the point. What I'm interested in today, dear friends, is the moral of this story that prayer is and can operate like an instrument. Although I dislike this word, it's an inadequate word because it may suggest some kind of automatism in relation to prayer which cannot be further from the truth. But for lack of a better word, prayer is like an instrument in the hands of the believer to determine the tomorrows in her life, to frustrate the inevitability of the cancer metastasizing in our loved one and their body so that they would die, to break the limitation of a womb that cannot conceive, to frustrate the apparent foregone conclusion of an inhumane plot in your office aimed at doing your personal and professional damage. Or you name it, like an instrument that can trigger divine action and divine intervention whose results would be absolutely enormous. Because the future, dear friends, is not determined. It is still to a large extent open and that God can be prevailed upon and even divine plans can be changed. Based on these four, based on these four, we can confidently claim the validity and the power and the efficacy of prayer, dear friends. The future is not determined. It is still, to a large extent, open. God can still be prevailed upon and even divine plans could be altered. Does, it does make sense and it is effective to pray to God. And if the, future, if the future were determined, think about that. Oftentimes, we don't stop to think uh, critically about these things. If the future were determined, what would be the purpose of prayer? Not really. There might be some psychological benefit, but it wouldn't amount to much. If God's mind or his plan could not be changed, what would be the purpose of prayer? Not very much, really. And the story of Jacob struggling all night with, the Bible says, the angel, we know that to have been the Lord himself, asking and begging, struggling for a blessing to be placed upon his life is a perfect illustration for us here. Because Jacob prevailed upon God, and so can you. What would we do without prayer. So pray, for he is not hard of hearing, nor is his arm too short. Amen. Amen. Now may the Lord of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, may he equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.